0: If you would this morning, let's go back to Galatians chapter 1. I know a, a lot of preachers, pastors will preach themed messages depending on certain holidays, and, and that's certainly their prerogative. There's nothing wrong with that. And sometimes I do it, but most of the time I just don't have liberty to do that. And uh, when it comes to Mother's Day, most Mother's Day messages that I've heard seems to fall into one of two categories. On the one hand, it seems like the mothers are getting scolded. They're getting the, the finger wag, and I don't want to do that. And on the other end, uh, I've heard sermons where it's like the preacher elevates the mothers to the level of Jesus, and you get done with the message, and I'm like, well, where was the gospel in that, you know? And so uh, I can just avoid all those extremes by just uh, staying in Galatians this morning. Um, We've only preached one message in Galatians uh, through our study, and um, we've already seen that the theme of Galatians is actually found in chapter 5 and verse 1, and that is our liberty in Christ, not to be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And, And Paul is extremely passionate in this letter. In fact, his letter to Galatians is the only epistle to the churches where he does not Uh, commend the church. He's not uh, thankful for the church. I'm not saying he wasn't thankful for them. I'm just saying he was so passionate he didn't take the time to be thankful for them. And so his salutation was very short. And then he gets right into the message. And the reason that he was so passionate is because these Judaizers, uh, these Jews who claimed to be Christian converts, they had come in to the church and they were preaching a false gospel. They were perverting the gospel of grace, and they were teaching that works was necessary to obtain salvation, namely the keeping of the Old Testament law. In fact, these Judaizers basically said that you had to become Jews in order to become Christians, even to the point where they were commanding grown men to be circumcised as a token of the Old Covenant to come in. And then they said, after you do that, well, then you can be Christian. And as I may mention last time, you better be really careful about the people and groups that would tell you, uh, well, yeah, Jesus is the only way to heaven, but our church is the only way to Jesus. That's exactly what the Mormons say. That's really what the Catholics say. It's what the Jehovah's Witnesses, we're the one true church. Oh, yeah, Jesus is the only way to heaven. We believe that, but we're the only way to Jesus. And that's exactly what they were doing. It was a works-based salvation and let me say this about works, because people always get confused when they hear me say these things. There's two extremes that you get into when you talk about works as it pertains to a Christian. Uh, the first one is a big word, antinomianism. That's just a $12 word, and all it means is without law. In other words, somebody can supposedly be saved to be a Christian, and live whatever way they want to because, hey, we're without law. We're under grace. And that's not at all what the Bible means when it says we're under grace and not under law. And um, in fact, antinomianism, that's what Jude was dealing with in his epistle that we just went through a few weeks ago. Remember we preached on getting grace wrong and how these false teachers had turned the grace of God into lasciviousness? In other words, because we're saved, we can live any which way we want to? No. No. Uh, The other extreme is legalism, which is what Paul is dealing uh, with here in Galatians, and that says that you have to work in order to earn God's favor. You can't do that. There's not enough works you could ever do to earn God's favor. He has not only a good standard, but a standard of absolute perfection, and we can't can't meet that standard. And so uh, here's the thing about works. When it comes to works, we don't work in order to be saved. We work because we are saved. The reason that I went out there, along with you, I'm sure you could say the same thing, at least I hope so, but the reason that we can go out and serve the homeless is not because we're trying to earn brownie points with God. I do it because I love God, because I've been forgiven. I'll never feel the flames of hell. I've been brought into a right relationship with God, and from that freedom and from that gratefulness, we can serve God. That's the difference. One works in order to be saved, and one works because we are saved, and we work because and by the power of Christ in us. It's not even really us that's doing it. So yes, uh, if there is a root of salvation, there will be fruit of salvation. I would never argue that. Uh, but we're not doing this in order to be saved. But when it comes to uh, the, our text this morning, uh, as I was, we saw last week, Paul starts this letter. Yes, he's going to attack false gospels, but he begins this letter by defending the true gospel. Let's just, for the sake of uh, remembrance, it's been a couple of weeks, let's just read these first five verses. He says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me under the church of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So he's defending the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. He's either enough or he's not. He can either save us or he can't. He's defending the true gospel. What could you add to that? What could we add? to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh. You can't do any better than that. But they thought they could evidently. And that's what we're going to deal with today. In verse 6, Paul begins to level the accusation against these Galatians believers. And I think it's important to point this out. We'll find later in the book of Galatians, Paul does go after the false teachers themselves. But in the text this morning, he is dealing with the believers that have been duped by this false teaching. No doubt the false teachers will be held accountable, but so will those that are willingly ignorant to the truth and so openly listening to lies because they didn't take time to search out the truth. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's read our text this morning, just three verses. uh, Galatians 1 verse 6. He said, I marvel." that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, say I now again, if any man preach another gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be a curse. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. I pray that you just empty me of sin and self. Fill me your Holy Spirit. I pray, God, if there's somebody lost today that you'd save them. God, if they put their faith and trust in a false gospel, you would open their eyes to that. If there's somebody who is saved and they're just struggling with the the benefits and the joy and the peace, also perhaps because of a false gospel, I pray that you would encourage them today. Uh, Lord, I pray you find us where we are, make us who you want us to be, and hide behind the shadowed cross. And uh, Lord, be with as I'm away in Christ's name, I praise things. Amen. Now, when it comes to false gospels, um, I-, I believe most false gospels uh, they make people feel good about themselves in their sin. They make themselves feel as if they are okay, but they're not okay. But there are some gospels I believe where People have enough to where they are saved, but perhaps they don't enjoy the benefits of the peace, and we're going to look at that uh, today. But in this text, the Apostle Paul is just beside himself. He, he, He cannot comprehend how somebody who is saved and called by the grace of God has been so duped so easily by this false gospel that adds works to grace. And in fact, he says, Uh, They've been called unto another gospel, which is not another. You know, you can have another of the same kind. You know, for example, you can have the red bag of Doritos or the blue bag of Doritos. It's all good. Amen? It's all wonderful. It's all a good snack. Red or blue doesn't matter to me. I like them both. But now, if you're talking about Doritos or carrot sticks, they may both be a snack, but they ain't the same thing. It's not another of the same kind. It's another of a different kind. That's what Paul is saying here. It's another, but it's not really another because it's another of a completely different kind. And he says, he says, though we, he says, even if I tell you something different than what's already been preached, don't listen to me. That's how serious he is about this. If an angel comes to you and tells you something different than the gospel that's already been preached, don't listen to him. It's almost like he knew Joseph Smith was coming. You know it? Joseph Smith says the angel Moroni came into his bedroom and told him where he could find the golden tablets and the cipher to understand those tablets. God said, Don't believe them. And so, he, and then he says twice, he uses this word accursed. He said, If a man or an angel or even me comes to you and teaches or preaches another gospel that adds works to grace, let him be accursed. That's the strongest language in the Bible you can find. Let them be damned. That's what he's saying. That's how serious he is. You say, why would he be that serious? Well, it's because when it comes to the gospel, this is the most serious issue we can think of because it answers the question of what makes a person right with God. And even as you sit here, you better have the right answer to that question. What makes you, even as you sit here this morning, what makes you right with God? And are you right with God this morning? Because it's a very serious thing to die lost without God. And there's so many false gospels out there that people have put their faith and trust in. They're lost as a duck in the desert and they don't even know it. And so we're going to look at this morning kind of an unorthodox message for me. And the reason I say that is because, as you know, I'm very serious about uh, staying close to the text of Scripture and preaching what thus saith the Lord and As a preacher, I'm supposed to give you the interpretation what the Bible says and the application, how that applies to us. Uh, But in this message this morning, I'm going to be very heavy on application. And the reason I say that is the Apostle Paul in this day was addressing a specific group of false teachers, a specific false gospel that added works to grace. And so, you know, it would be really easy to talk about the Judaizers it would be easy to compare that to the Mormons and take shots at the Mormons and take shots at the Jehovah's Witness and take shots at all these works-based gospels. I could preach for six hours on that. But I think I would rather park it and preach to us this morning. You see, that's what Paul was doing. He was reaching out to true believers about false teaching within that church. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to preach against false teaching that has somehow found its way even into the Baptist church. So that if you want to give the uh, message a title this morning, it would be false gospels within the Baptist church. False gospels within the Baptist church. Things that I've seen uh, even in my time. Of course, I got saved uh, at the age of 14, and I've been in the Baptist church ever since, and just things that I have observed through the years. And even as I preach and teach these things, maybe there's some things you've never heard of, but there's going to be some things, yeah, I've heard that. I was taught that. I might even believe that for a time. And so bear with me this morning as we deal with false gospels within the Baptist church. Now, certainly these false gospels are not only within the Baptist church, but because we are Baptists, sometimes I feel a need to clean out our own ranks from time to time. You know, if you can't do that and take some honest self assessment, uh, you might just be a cult. You see, cult leaders are above reproach. Baptist pastors and Christians should never get to that point. Um, so, the first false gospel within the Baptist church I want to talk about is the prosperity gospel. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on this one this morning. Because quite honestly, I feel like the Baptist church has done fairly well staying away from this one. It it definitely is in some churches, but I feel as a whole in the Baptist church, not, not a bigger deal. Not as big as the ones we're going to talk about in a minute. But I will say this. When it comes to the prosperity gospel, Christ did not come to save you from all your troubles. He didn't come to save you out of all your sicknesses in this life. He didn't come to give you health, wealth, and prosperity. He didn't come uh, to give you the life that you always dreamed about and wanted in this life. Now, all that stuff will come one day, but it won't be in this life. Um, and I, I know you understand that. Surely, uh, our home folks have heard me preach long enough. You're like, I've heard this before. But I will say this, and I have said this before. I, I'll tell you, I think one way the prosperity gospel has found its way into the Baptist church is through what I call the heaven and hell gospel. And what I mean by that is, I've heard gospel presentations from Baptist pulpits, and Baptist Christians may be witnessing in their own private time, to listen to them talk, you would think that salvation is only a choice between heaven and hell. That's not the gospel, folks. Yes, there is a heaven to gain. Yes, there is a hell to shun. And if you die without Christ... You'll go to a place that Jesus said was full of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth where the fire is never quenched, the worm never dies. Uh, It's a place of outer darkness where you can't even see your hand in front of your face. It's a place of torment. You don't want to go there. But that is not the gospel. And if I tell you this morning that it's your choice, it's your decision, heaven heaven or hell, which one do you choose? Any fool knows that heaven is better than hell? And the only difference between the full-blown prosperity gospel and what I call the heaven and hell gospel is the heaven and hell gospel is prosperity later. The prosperity gospel is prosperity now. Because if I just pitch the gospel to you as a choice between heaven and hell, you're thinking, let's see, streets of gold, big mansions, plenty of wealth, no sickness. That kind of sounds like the prosperity gospel now. Or... Hell, fire, outer darkness, torture, torment. You know, I think I'm going to go with the former there. I choose heaven. That's a materialistic message, is it not? When the real gospel is not simply between heaven and hell, but between Jesus and the world. Between Him and sin. And so the choice is Jesus or the world. That's the gospel. Christ didn't come to save us from all our problems. He came to save us from our sin. And I think you understand that, so I'm not going to take up too much time on that. i want to go immediately to the second false gospel in the Baptist church. Uh, This is really prevalent. This is everywhere, and I believe every person in here has probably seen this at some point in time. Um, It's what I call the gospel of the sinner's prayer. You ever heard of the sinner's prayer? Um, I've been around it pretty much most of my life, and... I want to really be specific about this because I don't want anybody to leave here and claim that I said things that I didn't say. So listen really carefully here. But the gospel of the sinner's prayer is the idea that we are saved by saying a prayer. That we are saved from sin by saying a prayer. But I want you to notice very carefully here. I want you to notice the implications of this idea. And that is that we are saved by something that we do. (laughs) We're saved by something that we do. And when I think about the sinner's prayer and this mindset, it brings me back to my childhood days when I was raised in the church of Christ. And the church of Christ believes that water baptism saves you. And not only being baptized in water, but being baptized into the church of Christ. You cannot be saved apart from water baptism. Salvation by grace through faith alone does not exist in the Church of Christ doctrine. You have to be baptized. And so I was. I was baptized into the Church of Christ as a 13-year-old boy. And nothing about my life changed. Nothing changed. My heart didn't change. My music didn't change. My language didn't change. Nothing about my life changed. And I even remember to this day, I remember like it was yesterday. I remember thinking in the days following, is this all there is to being a Christian? Of course, there's more to it. And if you had asked me if I was saved or if I was going to heaven, I would have said yes. And if they would asked me why, I would have said because I've been baptized. You know what I was doing? I was pointing back to something that I did. The sinner's prayer has become, to many Baptists, the same thing that baptism is to the Church of Christ. I, I'm saving to go into heaven, why? Because once upon a time, I prayed the prayer. I did the one, two, three, repeat after me, and now it doesn't matter if I live like a child of hell, doesn't matter if they hadn't been to church in decades, doesn't matter if they've never even mentioned the name of Christ to their neighbor, it doesn't matter if there's any fruits of salvation or repentance at all, I said the prayer, I'm going to heaven. There's a lot of people that's done that. They've said the prayer, they got dunked in the baptismal pool a week later, and they were never seen again. That's not salvation. That's not salvation. Now, you're saying, Brother Brandon, do you have a problem with sinners praying or calling upon God? Not what I'm saying at all. At all. In fact, it's appropriate for sinners to call upon the name of the Lord. But listen... The prayer is not the means of salvation. It is the evidence of saving faith within the heart of a person. That There's that's such a distinction to make there. In fact, let's very quickly, let's go to Romans chapter 10. I want you to see this. I, I believe that the, the sinner's prayer is a product of a misinterpretation of this text here in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, and I'll begin in verse uh, 8. It says, What saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth, and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Notice the word of faith is already in the person's heart here. And it says that if thou shalt confess with with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So there's the belief in the heart again. You can say whatever you want to with your mouth. If the belief is not in your heart, it doesn't matter. It's just empty words. We've all said things we didn't mean. In verse 10 it says, "For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confessions made unto salvation. But listen. This is not saying that, oh, when we utter utter these magical words, God all of a sudden saves us. That's not what this is saying. And it goes on to say in verse 11, For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. In other words, there's no such thing as a private faith. Saving faith is not a secret faith. There's no such thing. It does not exist. And the confession of the mouth is speaking of a public confession. This is a public thing. It says, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto them that call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then look at verse 14. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? Do you see that? And so it's not a means of salvation to utter these magical words. And by the way, you won't find the sinner's prayer anywhere in the Bible. You won't find it and when people ask the apostles, like the Philippian jailer, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He didn't say, repeat after me. He didn't say, say these words, go say a sinner's prayer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I want to I really hammer this home here. Whenever I've debated Church of Christ members in the past, I've always asked them this question. I said, so if somebody comes to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're walking down the aisle of the church to go get baptized. And before they make it to the baptismal pool, they fall and break their neck and die. I said, are they in heaven or in hell? And without fail, they all say, well, I don't know. That's up to God. I said, no, 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 no. no. I said, salvation's either by baptism or it ain't. Ain't no kind of stopping off place in the middle. And I'm going to ask you the same question. If somebody comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ by His grace, and they pass from death unto life, and God regenerates their heart and draws them unto himself, and they are walking down an aisle to go say a sinner's prayer at an altar, and they fall and they break their neck before they get there. Are they saved or lost? Are they going to heaven or hell? They're going to be in heaven because the prayer does not save them any more than baptism does. So I want us to get away from this. I want you to understand what I'm saying. And... Um, I, I, honestly, I may not even get through this one point this morning. I, I may have to spare you all the other three, and we may pick it up next week. But uh, I really want to hammer this home. Uh, it's appropriate for sinners to call on the Lord, but that that's not what saves somebody. Um, the sinner's prayer is dangerous because it's given so many people false assurance over the years and that they can live however they want as long as they remember the date that they prayed that prayer. You know, somebody lived like the devil, but they say, well... I prayed the prayer back on March 13th, 1987. That's not how this works. Uh, and not only is it not found in Scripture, as I mentioned a, a second ago, but it's not even found anywhere in church history until around 250 years ago. The sinner's prayer, along with the altar call, were made popular by Charles Finney. We've studied him a little bit on Wednesday nights. Um, Now, Charles Finney was a full-blown heretic, and it blows my mind how so many uh, ministers and preachers of this day brag on that guy. Jerry Falwell spoke highly of him, for one thing. Uh, Billy Graham spoke highly of him. Charles Finney was a heretic. I don't even think the man's in heaven. I don't believe he's in heaven. That man denied original sin. He denied the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. He denied the imputed righteousness of Christ, and he also taught sinless perfectionism. (laughs) All you have to do is go get a copy of Charles Finney's Systematic Theology. Read the contents where it shows the chapter headings, and you'll find out where he was at. It was all about moralism. It was all about what we do to please God. I think you have to get to like chapter 21 before you even get to anything about Jesus Christ. It's insane. And this is the man who made popular the sinner's prayer and the altar call, or what he called the anxious bench. That's what he called it, the anxious bench, where, you know, he had these big tent meetings and they had this bench on the front where after he had tried to scare the devil out of people, they would come and... Uh he would walk them or one of the counselors walk him through a sinner's prayer, whatever the case may be you know this this practice really continued with people like Dale moody uh as I mentioned Billy Graham Bill bright, and uh you say well. <laughs> Brother Brandon, how were people saved before the sinner's prayer on the altar call? By grace through faith in Jesus Christ, just like the gospel says, just like the Bible says. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 4. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And you say, well then, well, how did people know when somebody uh, was saved? Because they showed fruits of repentance... And they went to the elders of the church and they told them that I've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and I want to show my allegiance to him through believer's baptism. That's how you knew. That's how it was done. And to show you uh, just how crooked Finney was and how much this has altered how we think about um, evangelism even within the church and salvation within the church, listen to this quote by Finney here. (laughs) He tells on himself, Finney said the church has always felt it necessary to have something of this kind, talking about the sinner's prayer and the anxious bench. He said the church has always felt it necessary to have something of this kind to answer this very purpose. In the days of the apostles, baptism answered this purpose. Did you see that? In the days of the apostles, baptism answered this purpose of public identification with Christ. It was baptism. And he says... The gospel was preached to the people, and then all those who were willing to be on the side of Christ were called out to be baptized. It held the place that the anxious seat does now as a public manifestation of their determination to be Christians. Isn't that wonderful? Charles Finney could replace the 2,000 year old ordinance of baptism as a public profession of faith. You know why he did it? Because it was an easy way to get big numbers. Big numbers. If I can get somebody down to this altar, if I can get somebody to pray a prayer, then I can brag about all the conversions I've had. We can dunk them into baptistry, and everybody can feel like God did something. It's cheap is what it is, because you're not getting somebody to Christ, you're getting them to repeat a prayer. You're not getting somebody to salvation, you're getting them to a mourner's bench or an anxious seat. That's too low of a goal. We're not called to have big numbers and make converts. We're called to disciple people. A lot more effort, a lot less glory. It's too low of a goal here. Well, let me ask you this. Do you have a real relationship with Jesus Christ? Does your love for Christ manifest itself in your daily life? Have you truly been born again by the Spirit of God? Don't put your trust and faith in just some prayer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got time, I'm going to plow through these last two like a hurricane. Well, they can move slow too, so. But the third false gospel, really quickly, the, the third false gospel that is rampant in the Baptist church is the false gospel of easy believism. Uh, some have called this free grace theology. Uh, this younger generation of independent Baptists is saturated with this nonsense. And what this teaches is that repentance is not necessary for salvation. That is nonsense. Free grace theology is uh, the opposite of what I would call lordship salvation. Now, I believe in lordship salvation. Now, there's a lot of confusion about that. People that haven't studied it just believe what they're told. They think it's a works-based salvation. That's nonsense. Uh, Basically, Lordship Salvation says if you don't get the Lord, uh, if you don't submit to Christ as Lord, you don't get Him as Savior. And that's true. You can't just have have Him as Savior and not as Lord of your life. That's crazy. Um, I'll explain this as we go. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Whereas you were going one way, now you're going the total opposite direction. Not perfectly, but you're not going the same way that you used to go. And the idea behind free grace theology is that we can't possibly know all of our sin, and we can't possibly repent of all of our sin. Therefore, since we can't do it, it's not a part of salvation. Now, Jack Hiles believed this. Jack Hiles was a scoundrel. I don't don't care if Jack Hiles was the biggest and best-known independent Baptist ever lived. That guy was a scoundrel. That guy, I don't even know if he's in heaven either. And I'm sure I'll get some emails about that. But I'm not going to defend somebody who probably never preached a Bible message in his life, preached a gospel that didn't include repentance, and covered up all kinds of sexual immorality in his own church. I'm not going to defend somebody like that. Uh, Curtis Hudson believed that repentance was not necessary for salvation. Called it heresy. Uh, J. Vernon McGee said if somebody preaches repentance is necessary for salvation, they're preaching a false works gospel. It's a works-based salvation. In fact, uh, Jack Hiles said that all you have to repent of is unbelief. That's silly. (laughs) That changes the whole meaning of the word. And and to prove the point, think about what John the Baptist said in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. He didn't say believe and believe believe the gospel. He didn't say believe and believe the gospel. He said repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. And the guy, the problem that these men are going to run up against is the fact that Jesus said, Repent or perish. Luke 13, verse 3 and verse 5. Jesus also said in Mark 2 and verse 17, I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The idea is calling sinners from their way to come His way. Peter said, Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 3 and verse 19. And here is what we need to know about the issue. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. They're inseparable. There can be no true faith without repentance of sin, and there can be no repentance of, fi- of sin without saving faith. Paul commended the church at Thessalonica because they turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. Repentance is when we take sides with God against ourself. Faith without repentance... Listen to this. Faith without repentance is nothing but a mental agreement with the facts of the gospel. And by the way, this faith without repentance is the same faith that the devils have. James 2 and verse 19 says, Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. The free grace crowd is correct that we can't turn from sin on our own, but what they fail to realize is that repentance is a gift from God just like grace and faith are gifts from God. 2 Timothy 2, verse 23 through 26, it says, But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strife. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, and to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. So repentance is a gift from God in which He enables us to come out of the snare of the devil. He pulls us out of the snare of the devil. The free grace crowd will say, well, you can't, you can't repent. That's a word. You can't do that. But listen, repentance is a mandatory miracle. God commands it, but He also performs it. It's kind of like the raising of Lazarus. Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus. He's dead. He's stinking. He's been in the grave for four days. And Jesus walks up to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. The free grace crowd would say, well, he can't do that. He can't, he can't raise himself from the... He can't do that. That can't be what Jesus means. Not only did he command it, Christ performed it. When he commands us to repent and believe the gospel, we can't repent, we can't believe the gospel, we can't willingly desire Christ apart from his grace, we can't do it. He commands it, but he enables it. And so a life of repentance is the fruit of saving faith. But it's the enemy. Listen, the reason that somebody like Jack Hiles and Curtis Hudson hate the doctrine of repentance is because <clears throat> the fruits of repentance, the fruits of saving faith are the enemy of large numbers in soul winning. Period, paragraph and that's why they don't like it. There is no such thing as saving faith without repentance. It's a false gospel and it is a cancer in the Baptist Church. It's a cancer. But then lastly, and I'm done. Number four, I want to talk about the false gospel of retribution, or what I call the retribution gospel. Now, this is the idea that a person is saved by grace through faith, but that the evidence of their salvation can be seen by a lack of suffering in their lives. Now, let me say this about the retribution gospel. I know people that I believe are saved, They understand the gospel. They've repented. They've trusted in Christ. I believe they're going to heaven. But they have not been able to enjoy it one day in their life because they've got a part of the gospel wrong. The retribution is not necessarily a gospel that keeps people from getting saved. It's a gospel that keeps people from enjoying their salvation, the joy of the Lord and the peace that comes with that. And and honestly, I noticed this phenomenon Growing up in the Independent Baptist Church, I just never could really put a finger on it. And this whole thing with Leah having this migraine headache that's lasted for over three years, and the the suffering we've endured, the doctors we've seen, all that we've gone through, it's really, really shined a light on that. (laughs) Because uh, this mindset says, basically, if things are going well in your life, you must be saved and living right. However, if you're suffering especially if you suffer for any length of time, then you must be lost or you must have sin in your life. There's really people that believe that. But, I mean, it's really, <clears throat> it's the same thing that Job's friends said to him. That's right. All these things are happening to you because of something. You've you got a secret sin in your life somewhere, Job. You just get right with God and all this goes away. It's the same thing that the disciples said about the blind man in John chapter 9. They said, Master... Who did sin? This man or his parents that he should be born blind. In other words, what did he do to deserve this? Let me tell you this. And if you hadn't listened to anything else I said, give me three minutes. Listen to this. I've seen too many suffer from this nonsense. And the thing about the retribution gospel is it makes people think that people really do get what they deserve. Let me ask you a question. Do you think life is fair? Do you think that people really get what they deserve? Let me ask you about the people that are in heaven, rejoicing around the throne of God right now. Do you think they got what they deserve? No. Now, let me ask you this. Even in situations in this life, you know, somebody that may get lung cancer, somebody might say, well, you know, they smoked for 30 years. They deserve what they get. Listen, folks. There's people that's never smoked a cigarette in their life that get cancer. Can you explain the fairness to me about that. There, I mean, there's people um, that do smoke that don't get cancer. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on. The bottom line is life ain't fair. And ultimately, what we here's here's what the retribution crowd gets wrong. Ultimately, we all deserve hell. Every one of us deserve hell. So anything north of that is the grace and mercy and goodness of God. And so get that out of your mindset. Job's friends were wrong. God was in control of his suffering 1,000%. And even in our life, I cannot tell you, y'all, I cannot tell you how many people, good-meaning people have told us That if Leah would just repent and get right with God, the headache goes away. I'm serious. And so I know if I had this many people tell me that to my face, God knows the people that say it behind my back. Oh, He's there, you know, even though I don't know what's going on, they're getting what they deserve. Friend, go snap into a King James and read about the suffering of God's people. Listen, here's here's the problem with the retribution gospel is Even saved people beat themselves up about everything. I I believe the retribution gospel is a result of at least some influence of the prosperity gospel leaking into our churches. It's the idea that if I just do this, then God will do that. And by the way, it's a subtle way of trying to control God. Did you know that? If I just repent, if I just do this, then all of my problems go away. Let me explain something to you. And this is why, listen, some of these folks that I'm talking about that have told us these things, they're in our family. In our family. We deal with it a lot. And, and here's their problem. You know what the problem is? If God is completely in control of our suffering, 100%, and it has nothing to do with anything that we're doing or not doing, guess what? We're not in control of a God like that. And a lot of people just ain't comfortable with that. Job was not in control of that. Job's friends were not in control of that. And when God shows up in the whirlwind at the end of the book, He let them know they weren't in control of that. He's just that big of a God. And He has a purpose and a plan for all of this. But the retribution gospel, anytime something bad happens in somebody's life, they're like, well, what did I do wrong? What am I doing wrong? And they they beat themselves up over things that Christ was already beaten for. And when you beat yourself up about things that Christ was already beaten for, you're saying that the cross isn't enough. Now, yes, if we sin, if we do wrong, if we were actually doing, we need to get that right. But we don't have to beat ourselves up. Some I met some people, y'all, honestly, and I hope this is not you this morning. I've met some people. They literally could not feel right without feeling wrong. No joy, no peace. They can't enjoy being saved. It's this retribution gospel, this nonsense. It robs good Christian people of their assurance, and it robs the peace and joy in their salvation based solely on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It also places a huge burden on Christians in the sense that they think they're solely responsible for every bad thing that happens in their life. <clears throat> and so... The retribution gospel also robs God of his sovereignty. I, I think about that even in our situation. It-, it hurts people. Whereas other false gospels give faults, assurance when they should fear, the retribution gospel gives burdens and grief to true Christians when they should have peace. And so all of these things are in the Baptist church. The question I want to close with is, are you truly born again? Not did you say a prayer, not did you join a church or get baptized, but are you born again? Does that bear itself out in your life? Do you know and love the Lord today? Have you believed a false gospel that comforts you when you should be afraid? Or have you believed a gospel that burdens you when you should be free? Because that's really the issue we're going to deal with the further we get into Galatians. Galatians was written to recovering Pharisees. And I'm a recovering Pharisee, so we're going to have a lot of fun when we get in there. Are you free in Christ? I mean, real? are you free today? Have you been saved from the penalty and the power and the bondage of your sin? If not, I'm going to use biblical language. Repent and believe the gospel.